Hi, my name is Antonia Dominguez. And I'm Linda Coogan. And you're listening to Wine, the long and the short of it. In proud partnership with Give Wine a Future. How well do you know your wines? From the simple to the complex, from acidity to Symphondel. Welcome to Wine, the long and the short of it. My name is Antonia Dominguez, the long. And my name is Linda Coogan, the short. Between us, we have over 30 years collective experience in wine buying, wine retail and wine education. Every week we discuss a topic, product or trend from the world of wine. Hi everyone and welcome to this episode, which is all about movies and wine ahead of the Oscars taking place on Sunday, 12th of March. Very exciting. We're both movie buffs, so uh, looking forward to this one. Yeah, and definitely one that is dear to my heart because um, myself and my sister uh, religiously watched the Oscars live since we were since I was ten years uh, of age. It was the only night in the year, school night, that we were allowed to to stay up, you know, basically all night and watch watch the Oscars. Sorry, but it's in the middle of the night. I know, well Irish time. in Ireland in Ireland yeah. it's in the middle of the night. I know we would come home from school, we would have our dinner, do our homework, and then um, we would have to go to, straight to bed then and set the alarm for about midnight and get up <laughs> and watch the little, you know, the run up to the Oscars and the red carpet bit. And and then it usually went on till about 4am, we'd collapse back into the bed. Yeah, I know it's madness. I love that. That's a lovely tradition. Brilliant. Okay. Yeah. Okay. I thought I was into my movies, but you're big time into the movies. Yes. Love it. Yes. And my sister works in that area. So, you know, definitely she influenced me. Um, But in researching movies and wine, Linda, there's not a huge offering. It's definitely limited. Um, And we've both picked out, I suppose, what we um, what we consider sort of the highlights. Definitely. Yeah. Like, I mean, there aren't that many. I, I We've gone through a long list and said, which ones will we will we highlight today? Yeah. But uh, yeah, no, there's a, a few classics that every wine buff should definitely watch. And then yeah. there's a few that are, you know, they're, they're not Oscar winning performances or scripts, I might add. But uh, no, they're definitely worthy of feel Worth good it. and, um, yeah. you know. Cool. Nice. So what we'll do is I'll kick off with a pick and we'll we'll alternate. But we're going to end this episode with a really exciting piece, I think. Um, yes. We have an interview with somebody that is extremely well known in the wine world and was also featured or characterized in um, a movie, a very famous movie called Bottle Shock, in which Alan Rickman starred playing Stephen Spurrier, a very um, well-known figure in the world of wine. Uh, Bill Pullman, Chris Pine, all uh, featured in this movie. So I think we'll get into the details of that closer to the end, where we will be featuring an interview that we did with uh, the famous Bo Barrett. Um, from Napa and uh, that was a great interview it was brilliant he was just a dream Um, yeah I mean the perfect first guest that we've had on the podcast as well yeah Yeah. for that interview Um, yeah I'm going to kick off with the really obvious one Linda Um, sideways has to be sideways no effing Merlot (laughs) that one (laughs) that one um, I mean, I think when people think of movies and wine, that's probably the first one that comes to mind. Um, and I suppose the, the thing about that movie is it's an actual movie 
do you know Robin? yeah no 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 it's not just about wine yeah exactly yeah. it's a lovely story but do you know what there's lots of people that I've spoken to saying you've obviously seen you know sideways and they're like no and yeah. oh it's a brilliant movie for anyone you don't have to be into wine but it really kind of yeah, go on. You 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 yeah. do your spiel on this. Well, it's about this guy Miles, and he's bringing his best mate, who's getting married, up to wine country from LA to Santa Barbara. Um, to to basically, he's a huge wine enthusiast, and he wants to bring him sort of for a week of wine tasting and a bit of a bit of fun. Um, uh, and I think the friend has something else in mind. <laughs> um, <laughs> but it's, it's and he has fun in mind that's for sure anyway he has a different type of fun in mind but um i think it's a, it's a funny story because um it's hard to like miles he's kind of this deplorable self-loathing character he's lying from the very first scene he's really self-deprecating he's self-sabotaging so it's really hard to like him but when yeah. he clicks into gear and he starts talking about wine and you see his passion for wine, you start, you know, there's moments there. He has his his moments, you know, where you kind of, you kind of sympathize and warm to him a little bit. Um, a little he, bit. A little bit. He redeems <laughs> himself when he does this good deed. Do you remember when he retrieves his friend's Derek hit the wallet? That he oh my God. Yes. That scene is just a bit um, outrageous. Um. But yeah, it's definitely over 18s, this movie as well. Yeah, it is, it is for sure. Um, but he, this movie really celebrates Pinot Noir and he is like just adores Pinot Noir and he's always talking about Pinot Noir in really glowing terms. And I think he uses, I mean, I think Pinot Noir in this movie is a character in itself and it's kind of the metaphor for Miles' character because he says, and I quote, he says about it, um, it's thin-skinned, temperamental, not a survivor like Cabernet, doesn't thrive when neglected, needs constant care and attention. Like you kind of feel like he's really talking about himself, you know. Um, and he says, only the most patient and nurturing of growers can do it. Only somebody who will take the time to understand Pinot's potential can then coax it into its fullest expression. Wow. Um, and then he says, its flavours are the most haunting and brilliant, thrilling and subtle and ancient I think a really interesting use of language. Um, he says Cabernet. I don't think he wrote that now, though, did he? <laughs> no, I just I liked. I really loved yeah, the language yeah. that they use. They said Cabernets can be powerful and exulting too, but they seem prosaic to me by comparison. He's telling Miles. So he's a bit of a deep thinker, this Miles, isn't he? Well, he's a writer. He's an well, he's an English teacher, an aspiring writer, trying to to, to write a novel. Um, so yeah, he can. He's definitely eloquent in his use of language. Um. But yeah, uh, I just I yeah, I enjoyed uh, all of that element to it. And the fact that they celebrate some great wines, they talk about um, when they have to pick out, you know, OK, what have you got in your collection? You know, they talk about Byron Pinot Noir, Fiddlehead, Oak Aged Sauvignon Blanc, Richebourg, Andrew Murray, Syrah, a Cheval Blanc 1961. And the Sasakai in 1988, like just really iconic wines. Um, mm -hmm. But but Maya, you know, he he says, um, Miles says that he has the 61 Cheval Blanc at home. And, you know, she's kind of going this this lady who is kind of the love interest. And she's uh, herself a hugely passionate uh, wine lover. And she says, um, you know, what are you waiting for? Open it. And he's saying, oh, I'm kind of waiting for waiting for the special occasion. And she says, um, the day you open the 61 Cheval Blanc, that's the special occasion. And I just, I love that. So yeah, loads of reasons to watch Sideways, despite the fact that he is 
a little detestable at the start. He actually steals money from his mother's knicker drawer. <laughs> oh, yes, he does. Yeah, no, I know. You don't you don't love him. But I, yeah, I mean, he, you end up kind of, okay, fair enough. Yeah. For a mile, but, you true. know. Yeah. Yeah. Um, no, there's some lovely, great, like it's it's a dark, dark humour, very much dark humour and um, a bit raunchy in places, but it's definitely one to yeah. enjoy with a glass of wine. Sorry, do you remember the bit? And this is probably the most revolting scene I've ever seen where he's in the wine tasting <laughs> and he's just received bad news about how his book is not going to be published and it's been rejected. And he goes back into the tasting room and he's trying to get like the guy to pour him a proper glass of wine and, and you not know, a taste and sample. Yeah. And then he, he ends up picking up the like this. There's this massive spittoon and he just starts like glugging it down and it just pours all over. <laughs> Sorry. It's revolting. Yeah, revolting. Lovely. Yeah. There you go. On that note, what have you got, Linda? I think I'll go for one that you probably haven't heard of before, Antonia. Okay. It's called um, Uncorked. Mm. I heard and... it, but I haven't seen it. Okay. So, yeah, this is, um, I, I think I only watched it last year for the first time. Like, um, it's actually, there's two Uncorked movies out there, but one, this one is uh, Uncorked 2020. Um, and it's available on uh, Netflix if you have a Netflix subscription. Um, and it's um, it's a really interesting story. It's not just about wine. It's about a, a guy who is working two jobs, one in a wine shop and one with the family business in a barbecue joint in Memphis. And his dad is like, you know, oh, son, you know, obviously, you know, you'll be taking over from me and you'll be, you know, showing him the ropes since he was really young and all the rest. And he has no interest whatsoever. He's working in this wine shop and that is his big dream, big passion to be a master sommelier. And you're kind of going, oh, you know, his dad is totally different vision and, and plan for the, the son's life. So it's it's more about relationships and things like that, but there's always a backdrop of wine and that. So you see him, he goes off. I'm not going to tell the whole story, obviously, because I don't want to ruin it, but it's a lovely, endearing, uh, thought-provoking story with ups and downs in it. And uh, he goes off and he, he studies to do his master sommelier exams. And uh, there's a few ups and downs, as I said, like hardships and things that he has to overcome. To be honest, for me, it was like really like real life, you know, and that it's not just, oh, let's work in wine and everything is amazing, you know. And um, there's obviously a love interest and a bit of drama and that. And, um, you know, it's it's I thought it was the, one of the nicest, pleasant, uh, feel good, but kind of, you know, get your emotions going as well uh, kind of movie. Um and it was about wine. There's scenes in Paris. They travel to Paris and that. And uh, no, I'm sounding, oh, I really enjoyed it. And I rewatched it there recently. And I was like, this is good. I mean, it was actually the director, the writer director's debut movie. Um, the person's name is Prentice Penny is the name of the writer who wrote and directed it. So I think fair play. I wasn't expecting it. I wasn't expecting anything because I had no idea who any of the actors or actresses are in it. And I was expecting, like you were saying at the beginning, there's more rubbishy wine movies than there are good wine movies. So I was expecting nothing. And I yeah. was really pleasantly surprised that I was watching it and would and, and recommended it and watched it again. So, yeah. OK. OK, well, look, I'll I'll jump straight into then the next one on my list, which um, am I? You're like, OK, I don't want to watch it. <laughs> well, you're to- totally you're like, no, I'm like. It sounds like it's going to be utterly depressing. 
which is okay. It's okay. But I'm only joking. No, no, no. So for my second choice, I am going to talk about the documentary movie Psalm. Well, not the first Psalm. I think most people are, well, a lot of people are familiar with that. That kind of talks about yeah. the sommelier's journey and, and, you know, in their quest to become a sommelier or master sommelier, which just to repeat for people who, who probably you know, often ask, what is the difference? Are you a sommelier? What's the difference between what you guys study in the WSET or in the master wine program and a sommelier? A sommelier mm-hmm. deals specifically with hospitality and service of wine and food and wine pairing. Yeah. That's the person you meet in the restaurant who is who is putting the wine list together and then recommending wines to the guests. That's a sommelier. Um, whereas WSET and then if you go on to do Master of Wine program, teaches you everything from the ground up, um, from the viticulture and the grape growing right through to the business of wine and yes. everything in between. And it does incorporate an element of the food and wine pairing, which is obviously important. Mm-hmm. So Sam covers that, but then Sam, so the one, the two that I watched more closely for this episode was Sam, the second Sam and the third one. And the second one goes into, as I said, more about the vineyard, more about what happens behind the scenes. Um, and I think it just read some really interesting bits and pieces. So like it talks about, for example, at one point awards and the importance of awards and ratings, you know, and um Jancis Robinson also features a lot in, in these uh, documentaries. And mm-hmm. she's kind of saying, you know, like, um, one psalm kind of highlights his distaste for, for the point system. And it's kind of like how I feel about Vivino. Mm-hmm. <laughs> he's kind of saying strong too, feelings. <laughs> he's just kind of saying there are too many different styles of wine to be able to just slap a rating. And then Jancis goes on to talk about Robert Parker and she says, Robert Parker's a friend of mine. He's been over to my house for dinner. I get on really well with his wife. But Robert Parker has a lot to answer for in terms of, now I'm paraphrasing, Jancis would never say that. She'd never be that undiplomatic. But she does say, like, Robert's taste and my taste are very different. He loves the big, rich, robust, powerful, alcoholic reds, for example. Mm -hmm. When he started, like the pointing, the points, his point system, it started off as mailing lists in the States. And he influenced consumers so much that he began to influence winemakers and dictate what kind of styles they decided to produce in response to the rating system. So all of a sudden, winemakers were kind of saying, oh God, if we want to get high scoring from Robert Parker, we better start making these rich alcoholic styles of wine. Um, and, and an example of that is, have you seen the movie Barolo Boys? No, I thought maybe. Yeah, we- so basically that's about the modernization of Barolo wine in right. Piedmont, where they actually changed the style to make more Robert Parker friendly. Wow. Uh, to point, yeah, yeah. So Brilliant. I'm not going to talk about it now, but yeah, that's a complete influence of, of, of that Parker Point system and yeah. a, a whole region and they, they got together for winemakers to change the style of their traditional yeah. wine for, for points. Interesting. Yeah. We won't go there, but that's a cool story that uh, controversial again. It we'll is, talk yeah. About again, but yeah. And, and, and they're saying, look, it's, it's basically something that tells the consumer what to drink if you don't know what to pick yourself. That's effectively what it's doing. But then Peter Gagos, the winemaker of uh, Penfolds, a really famous guy, he says, Look, it offers confidence to consumers to create short short lists of wines um, and help them to benchmark wines against other great wines of the world. In other words, look, it's only just to help people narrow down their choices. So there are lots of different views. I think it's really interesting. But I do think that, you know, from talking to winemakers myself, there are there are they're they're placing less importance 
on things like that. I mean, they're starting to do their own individual thing. And I, mm-hmm. some of the best wines I've tasted in the world, I mean, in the world, you hear me? I'm so worldly. But some of the best wines I've tasted were, was, ne- were, was never tasted by Robert Parker and his team, were never yeah. rated, nor were they put yeah. forward for ratings because that's the, yeah. the winery's choice whether to do so or not, you know? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so no. Psalm, and, and look, I'll just tie that in with Psalm three. That's my third, my third one, which was a different ball game. It was, it was a really interesting watch because it centered around it, it. And this is relevant to our interview at the end of this episode. It referred mm-hmm. back to the judgment of Paris and in 1976. It, the judgment of Paris was basically about Stephen Spurrier, who was an English guy who was just so passionate about wine that he he set up the Academy du Van in Paris. He had a little wine shop. He had a little restaurant there. And um, he decided that he was going to go out to California. He was going to select some of what he considered the best wines, Cabernet and Chardonnay wines from California, from boutique wineries out there, bring them back to Paris and get nine of the best palates in the country to blind taste them against French wines and Burgundy wines and Bordeaux wines and and rate them. And the wine that came out on top was Chateau Montalena Chardonnay, um, which was, yeah, Jim Barrett's wine. Um, So we'll talk about that again. But it was Stephen Spurrier who who set all that up. Um, and and so Psalm 3 is kind of goes back to that and um, talks about that event and how important it was because it really put American wines on the map, Californian wines on the map. It, it was a game changer. I mean, they actually say like it changed the world. Like up until then, it was only about, you know, French, wine, yeah, yeah, yeah. you know, yeah. only French wines could, you know, be that um, praiseworthy. And here was California knocking it out of the park and beating them to it in a blind taste. So um, so this Psalm 3, it, it's quite interesting. It starts off with sort of the, the scene in America and in, in New York specifically. And this guy, God, I can't remember his name, but he's a Psalm anyway. And he owns a wine shop and he gathers a sort of eight of the best palettes, all master sommeliers and so on. And he puts, he does a sort of a blind taste of Pinots and he throws in a Pinot from like, you know, Australia and he throws in a Pinot from Oregon and he throws in a, pin, a couple of Pinots from Burgundy and... Um, and then obviously uh, Santa Barbara and uh, and he gets them to rate it. And and, and the, the one from Santa Barbara comes out equal in first position with one of a uh, top Burgundy Pinot Noir. And so he goes to he goes to um, I don't know if it's France or the UK and he gets Jancis Robinson, Stephen Spurrier and a master sommelier called Fred Dame, who is really well known. And um, he gets the three of them, three of them to sit down and first they they. They, they each bring a wine that kind of ignited their passion for and their love of wine. So that was, that's a lovely touching moment. But then yeah, he, gets, yeah. he gets the top three Pinots as rated by the guys in New York and he gets mm-hmm. them to wine taste them. Okay. I know it's great. And I thought it was just brilliant. Um, And also I just, I had was my first time seeing this uh, Jancis Robinson was the keynote speaker when I got my WSET diploma and Stephen Spurrier handed me my diploma. And he um, he passed away two years ago. He started making his own yeah. in Bride Valley in the UK with his wife. Um, but I just seen the two of them and God, I, I didn't realize, you know, how important these people were. Well, I always knew Jansen yeah. was a bit of a goddess. 
Um, yeah. I didn't, yeah. I didn't realize the significance of Stephen Spurrier when he when he was conferring the diploma to me. And uh, yeah, I found it all really touching. Emotional and real. Yeah, yeah. No, I never got handed my diploma, Antonia. Why? Because I just had a baby. Oh, God. Yeah. yeah. So I wasn't able to go over my oh. my my celebrations. I never got handed that. I never had that. Uh, uh, oh, oh. I know. Oh, well. You just have what to do? do the MW. And you get- oh, yeah. <laughs> I'm not a lunatic. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but anyway, legends, legends and legends yeah. on screen and watching them do a blind. So it really gets, you know, behind the scenes, I, I suppose, and shows you the real stories of different things. OK, I like it. OK, yeah. I've only seen one and two. Psalm one and two. But oh. Psalm one is gas. It's yeah. gas, like the right, difference okay. in the different personalities and things like that. Um, I can't remember the guy's name. Ian, I think, is one of the guys. And oh, my goodness, like, you know, mm-hmm. kind of talk about uh, trying to perfect the studying and all of that. Like, yeah, no, mm, right. it's intense. It's I intense. haven't seen that one in a while, but they're all available on Apple, except, yeah, okay. I think some is. Yeah. Um, and I'm like they change all the time where they're available. I mean, by the time yeah. someone listens to this, um, they could be changed again. So, you know. And I'm Wherever not you familiar with, that, with what's on Amazon Prime and all those ones. So, I mean, yeah. you know, could be. Check them out, you know. And all these. Yeah. So what's next for, for you on your list? Um, I have a movie which is feel good and uplifting. Another little drama, a bit of love story going on and stuff like that. I'm sure you've heard of it, Antonia. A Good Year. Oh, yes, I have. I was looking a bit dreamy about this. So you no, and I'm movie. not really dreamy about Russell Crowe, now, to be honest with you. And I think his character is a bit funny. He's a bit giddy in this from start to finish. But I do love, um, I love the setting. I love the whole thing about Albert Finney, you know, his uncle yeah. who owned the winery. I love all that. Are you doing this review or am I? No, you are. You I'm are. only messing. I'm only messing. So, um, yeah, so A Good Year was... um in 2006 so it's not a not a new one but it's still a goodie and it, I don't think it's dated I think it's actually really enjoyable to watch anytime to mm-hmm. be honest with you so it's about this kind of cutthroat invest, investment banker or broker and he's just a bit arrogant and he's you know a womanizer he's a bit of a beep yeah we don't really like him at all and uh, he gets um, finds out he gets inheritance of his uncle's chateau and vineyards over in Provence and he's to go over and settle it all and do the paperwork. And it's really interfering with a big, you know, deal he's doing. So he's put out a bit. I'd be like, uh, yes, I'll be on the first plane popping over to Provence to see. And when you see where he ends up on this, you're like, oh, my God, the potential with this beautiful chateau. It's like everybody's dream in the whole wide world. And this fella is so arrogant that he's just, you know, not even paying any attention to where he is and the difference in lifestyle from you know, mm. fast paced and all that to just chilling out and enjoying life, you know. So mm. um he I have suppose a few own... memories from when he was there. Yeah. Like they with his uncle visiting and all of that. Yeah. So he spent a lot of time there when he was a kid. And um, you know, it, it, I suppose when he gets there, he kind of relives some of those memories and it goes back and forth. And it is a lovely story. I mean, I don't think he got an Oscar for the performance, but there, uh, the love interest is a sassy French woman who keeps it really interesting, him and his toes. And I love that. Um, and um, yeah, there's a few twists and turns and um 
yeah, I really, I really, I really enjoyed this. Like I'd watch this again now and kind of haven't seen it a few years ago. You'd turn it on and go, ah, yeah, we'll watch that. It's it's definitely mm-hmm. feel good. It's definitely uplifting and the scenery and the photography and all the imagery from it is just beautiful. Yeah. And do they make the best wine in the world here? No. Um, but is it lovely in in uh, and showing the whole the whole area and the the lifestyle? I suppose that can be yeah. is is lovely. I was just going to say, oh. just speaking of movies in general, don't you just love any movie that features those scenes where they're all around the table and they're gorging on like gorgeous food, authentic local food and wine, and it's yeah. it's the scene. Yeah. I'm trying to think, like you know, now not quite the same, but you know, like in Goodfellas at the end, and he's making. Yeah. Or when they're in the jail and your man he's uh, using the garlic, scraping the garlic, eating the garlic with the blade, and yeah, all about. Oh yeah, that's real like classy. Like he's pulling, <laughs> I know he's pulling out chunks of like prosciutto and breadsticks and you know, with the and the wine and they're sitting. But together. they're in jail and yet they're doing this. Like it's yeah, it's all about the whole experience of it together yeah. and community and connection. Yeah, I love that. Something we all relate to. Everybody has to. Yeah you know sit down and if you can make that so with your popcorn and your glass of wine watching these movies Antonia you don't like that no a buttery popcorn. chardonnay and a bit of popcorn oh yeah for sure okay yeah. yeah Um. so we'll have to get together soon and we'll have to watch it another uh, another wine movie Sour Grapes is a must watch a documentary yes, that is. people it must is. watch we don't have time to get into all this because you've got Bo's interview to listen to now I know so um, but Sour well, Grapes is a must watch it is. I'll actually it's, post a picture of my face watching that, which is like just shock. Shock and story. Yeah. Oh, yeah. look, we'll, we'll do another one again. And hopefully by the time we do another one, there'll be a few more wine movies. Yeah, go on, wine makers. Off you go. Make some movies for us to watch and rate. Yeah, or just actors, you know, or script writers. All yeah. these celebrities that have their, their vineyards and all. Yeah. You know, they could tell their story and do a documentary. We'll go over and interview Pink or Sting or whatever. Yeah, and, we uh, Yeah. Couldn't we? We could do our own documentary. Again, a documentary would get be- your sister involved. Yeah, we got her to direct, and <laughs> it'd be skin and hair flying by <laughs> by the end of the process. <laughs> um. So, look, I suppose uh, we should just talk a little bit about Bottle Shock because we're about to play the interview with the magnificent Bo Barrett. What a gent! Yeah. What a gent. You, you, you kick off and finish off. So go on. Yeah, well, like I mentioned, it's set in the 70s. It's Jim Barrett. He's, um, you know, bought a winery. He's making wine in Napa. Um, his son, who's a bit of a flake, who is Bo Barrett. <laughs> and I think he wouldn't mind me saying it because he alludes to this himself. Um, you know, he's he's working with his father, um, not as enthusiastically as his father might like at the beginning. And uh, it talks about, you know, this visit from Stephen Spurrier, who's planning on selecting the best that California has to offer and um, show, you know, putting it up against the French top French wines for this judgment of Paris. And uh, it follows the journey and uh it's quite fascinating and it's the fact that it's a true story and it has this amazing cast, you know. With a bit of Hollywood fluff as With well. Little, as he, yeah, says. he does say that, yeah. But need we say more? Let's not ruin it. Let's just play the interview and enjoy, folks. both familiar, all of us are familiar with the movie Bottle Shock in which you were portrayed by um, the great Chris Pine um, and I suppose we're just wondering to start off how, you know, 
true an account it is of what was happening in that period of your life with your father in the winery? Well, the spirit and the message that they give about how much we cared about doing something special was true. But, you know, things like I learned to have to be, have to be very careful what you say to screenwriters because <laughs> they ask you, oh, how, what's it like working with your father? And I make the mistake of saying, oh, we're always duking it out with the old man. Duking it out! <laughs> so then they got the boxing in the movie, you know, so that kind of uh, thing. And they, they have to be creative. They move things in time, like when the wine, it's called pinking, where it changed color. That's right after bottling it does that. So that would have been you know, in uh, September of 1974, it wasn't, you know, the summer of 1976 or the spring. So they moved things in time, but, you know, in general, they dramatized things that were happening and made it more, you know, Disney-like, you know, <laughs> the, the three obstacles to be overcome and, you know, the formula that Hollywood uses and yeah. wrapping our heads around that was kind of, but it was really fun. It was a gas and I met some really fun people. As a result of it, you know, like Alan Rickman was, oh, when he died, legends, everybody said yeah. what a great dude yeah, he was. He was, like, when my family, my kids would be there, we'd be sitting at the, you know, the crew lunch table, and Alan would just come and sit with me and my girls and that kind of thing. Oh, and wow. Bill Pullman still comes to the winery when he's in town, oh, so wow. we became friends over it. So it was really, really fun. But basically the movie, you know, we did win the tasting, and when they introduced my character at the beginning with some ganja in one hand and a bottle of wine in the other... <laughs> That was probably the last truly accurate part of the movie. So, but I think what they really got was the uh, how um, the American wineries tend to work together, especially in the early days and even today, that our collaborative nature of this new and growing business, you know, where we should have been, you know, absent prohibition, that we really all um, wanted to work together to reestablish the California wine in the North Coast in Napa and Sonoma. Uh, because if you know the American wine history, by 1960, the center of American winemaking was Modesto with the Gallows. Mm -hmm. And, you know, the North Coast was a sleepy little backwater, you know, uh, our vineyard was prunes and stuff like that, you know, from Prohibition. Mm -hmm. So, but then when we restored it, so, you know, I think what the spirit and the love story to California wine, that were there, I think they accomplished that objective. Mm -hmm. Great. I thought that really stood out in the movie. I only watched it again recently. And I just thought when everyone was trying to pitch an in for the flights and that kind of stuff, I don't know, I was like, is this real? Because it felt really authentic. Yeah. Yeah, no, but you know, like for me going to Paris, that was so far above my pay grade. Yeah. You know, like, there's no way that. Uh, did you even have a passport? <laughs> you know, yeah, I did have a passport because I, I traveled. Luckily, my family, I got to travel a lot when I was growing up. And to Ireland. Was, to Ireland. I didn't get to Ireland till I was a grown man. I brought my children over probably 20 years ago on my first trip to Ireland with my two daughters. I met you then yeah. in 2014. Oh, no, 2014 I met you. So that was my, that was my first business trip okay, here, but okay. I had come with my kids when they were, they were, they were all happy because, in, you know, drinking age is 21 in the US, <laughs> I had two beautiful daughters and they thought Ireland was quite fun because they could go out clubbing when they were 16 and 18. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so they had, a, they had a very, very fun time. And so, but yeah, my grandparents being from Waterford and from uh, Blackwater's name, so, and I have an Irish passport now and all that <laughs> nice. good stuff. And, so we're very proud of it. And when you come to the winery at the top of the stairs from the park lot up, right as you walk up to the taste room, there's a little sign that says Irish parking only. <laughs> that, that was my father's parking spot. And of course, I use it now because now Brilliant. I'm a big boss. <laughs> I love that. You, so you were present at the judgment of the famous judgment of Paris tasting, as, as you said. No, 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 no. Oh, you weren't? Nobody was there. The oh. only, George Tabor was the only one there. So okay. it, was, it was very much... 
uh, you know, was it's like it was in the Intercontinental Hotel. It was not in a you know cow a beautiful chateau. Like got, well, even the cow pasture in the movie, like where the yeah. guys, like they're going over the movie. The guy's like leaning on a cow. It's like, okay. <laughs> what kind of wine tasting would there be a cow on the drive? Yeah, can you imagine there? the like, aromas? <laughs> yeah. So, you know, so you know the silly stuff over there. It's just, but it's you know, again, that was they were just trying to do a really pretty and fun movie. Nice. But yeah, no, I was um, my job at that time. I was. I'm really a cellar rat. I was the second lowest guy on the cellar command ladder. But we only had three people too, so that would put me right in the, in the back, you know. So we had, our boss was the cellar master, and then I was the cellar one at the time. So my job was the filler, yeah, you know, because it was hand line and stuff like that. Okay. So, but yeah, no, I didn't get to go to Paris or anything like okay. that. that, okay. that that's, that's the Hollywood version. That add, <laughs> add a little bit of sexiness or a little bit of yeah. drama to the, to the story. And so tell me about how do you feel that, you know, Chardonnays from, from Napa, like your own, compared to sort of their Burgundian counterparts these days, do you think there has been a shift stylistically? That's back in popular. By 2000, when they invented the American Chardonnay, the Country Club Chardonnay, or what let's call it the Kendall Jackson or the Rombauer, that very American style with all that oak and all that, you know, fatness and the ML being, you know, pretty oily or buttery. You know, that style of Chardonnay remains popular to this day. But around 2000, we actually had trouble selling our style of Chardonnay in the U.S. Like, we almost quit making Chardonnay because it was so difficult to sell properly made Chardonnay. But my dad and I, we decided, well, you know, white burgundy is still selling. If we could just, you know, stick to the guns until the next generation of American wine consumers can understand that Chardonnay should be bright and refreshing and, you know, really sparkling rather than just, a replacement for a cocktail. Yeah. So the, we call the cocktail Chardonnay as a country club Chardonnay. It's still extremely uh, profitable to sell that in the U.S. And my friends, like I'm good friends with K.R. Rombauer, and that's probably the most famous, successful country club Chardonnay right now. But you see that our establishment of waiting and being patient enough for the Americans to understand the white Burgundy can be made with the sunlit California fruit too. Mm -hmm. So there's there's been a, a renaissance you know, with us and Dave Ramey, you know, the, the stalwarts that always made, you know, properly made, you know, table wine Chardonnay rather than the country club Chardonnay. So we've had a, a massive resurgence of that. And so you know, we feel vindicated by sticking to our guns and never making the sweet oaky Chardonnay. That's great and interesting that you mentioned Ramey. I was at an MW seminar last week and we do a lot of blind uh, tastings and so on. So we had Raimi and, and um, I can't remember what the other one was, but very much put into a flight of um, Burgundian um, Chardonnays and, and it was, it, we, we didn't pick them out, you know, and I suppose the whole point of it, this particular workshop we did was to highlight how, um, you know, Napa and other, you know. Yeah, well, to, even Napa. today at the portfolio tasting, I'm right next to a burgundy guy and they're taking yeah. all this, you know, burgundy, ooh, burgundy, burgundy. burgundy. Then they come over and taste our Chardonnay and go, ooh, oh, oh, how much does this cost? It's like half the price. Oh, oh well, this is pretty good. So you're still sticking <laughs> it to them. Well done. Yeah, well, we, 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 we like it. We don't say, I, that's, um, I think that the, one of the best things about the movie was the collegiate nature of how we do it. Like, you know, my competition is Dave Ramey, but we actually share a body line. So David and Carla Ramey, this is their family business too with their kids. Well, guess what? We are a family business. So, you know, we have to buy a half a million dollar bottling line that I'm going to use maybe 30 days of the year. And Dave's going to maybe, maybe use it like 30, 60. And I was looking for a partner in it. And, you know, I said, hey, David, do you want to go on a bottling line? Even though he's like one of our top competitors yeah, for, the, for the wine list spots. 
So we collaborate on that. And the allegory I use um, for the collaborative nature, it's kind of an American thing. But if you think about Major League Baseball, so I own a baseball team. Doug Schaefer owns a baseball team. David Ramey owns a baseball team. What do we want the most? People not watching football and not watching basketball. So I'd rather have somebody drinking David Ramey Chardonnay than uh, you know beer yeah. or, you know, yeah. or anything like that. And I would rather have them drinking Burgundy than beer, to tell yeah. you the truth. Yeah. So it's so you know it's uh, the collaborative nature that established the North Coast wine business in the '70s carries on through to today. Some of the new you know really billionaire owners that come in and just they have their ego in front of the mission rather than to make people's lives better as part of the mission. The fundamental mission of people who love making wine is actually our job is to make people happy, make their lives a little bit better one glass at a time. If you understand that's the fundamental mission, that's great. I get along good with all those guys and we all and we all tend to work together. It's the people who their fundamental mission is to get their name on a fancy bottle of wine and charge a lot of money for it. That's their their fundamental mission, and those are the ones that we kind of just ignore them and don't. You know, it's like they're they're on their own. Yeah, for sure, for sure. Leave, leave them at us. Yeah. Uh, well, look, we're really conscious of your time being limited, and you being in huge demand here. Um, but thank you so much. For I have one more question. I have one more question. We got time. We got time. My brother's covering for me. <laughs> <laughs> Kevin's Kevin's out there he grabs him. This is the funniest thing about Montalana because we're in it for this art and design and making people happy and so you know our ownership my parents have both passed away and uh, my brothers and sisters are now partners in the winery and we're still like a small family business like i'm the only one who's stuck in the agricultural side of the family my four brothers and sisters all went to different careers because the agriculture part of winemaking is the job never goes away we're either working in the vineyard working in the cellar going out selling wine or filling out government paperwork or you know it's just a job you have to be that, that type of person that has to go, 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 go. You know, mm-hmm. Even though it seems like we're just, you know, farmers taking it easy. It's, it's not <laughs> like that. But like for right now, at today's taste, my brother Kev, he's a former firefighter, but he knows the family brand and he knows what we do. He's one of my partners in the company. So he's covering for me right now. So we're good. Yeah, we said just pop your name tag on him and people be, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, double, he's, got, he's got a full head of hair. <laughs> when, when we have our hats on, it really, he really looks like me. <laughs> very good um, apart from Napa Chardonnay and Cabernet Sauvignon what grapes do you enjoy I or think outside of Napa well yeah I, so I like so the wines I like best are where they have a great sense of place and no defects I am one of the no defects kind of guys because the science side of wine making but I think that what we don't grow very that's not popular in the rest that I think should be is Syrah in particular mm-hmm. it's a great great grape and we make amazing ones in the U.S. But they're very hard to sell. Americans have been trained by, I don't want to you know, trash talk to Australians, but they sent a lot of really crappy Syrah to the United States as Shiraz, and it trained Americans not to drink Syrah. Okay. It's very difficult to sell. So mm-hmm. a lot of American winemakers, we love Syrah, but it's, well, we don't make that much because it's extremely difficult to sell. So I really like Syrah, and then I think that as we starting to see in the U.S., some of the um, southern European white grapes starting to come in, you know, because it all started with the... Um, the Rhone whites, but then you start some other stuff. So basically, I'm kind of an omnivore when it comes to what I enjoy. I don't have any particular one, but if I could, you know, say 
we can make these great Syrahs. It's so funny, the Syrah, you can make great Syrah, you just can't call it that. Mm-hmm. Like the one we make, the one I grow Syrah for Heidi and La, and, uh, La Serena, and we have to call it La Beritage as oh. a joke on the Heritage. And it's all fine with that. Oh, but wow. if it says Syrah and they're like, ah, we don't want that. <laughs> so that's oh, a good question. That's, good, that's a good question. But yeah, I've got like anything interesting, like one of my Austrian buddies just sent me a, a newly developed um, Austrian. Um, it's not. It's basically from the pollen and cross. And they bred a new donor riesling, which is mildew and botrytis resistant without spray. Okay. And it was really a nice bottle of wine. So, so that's a new tactical thing. So, when you have friends all around the world, I've been doing yeah. this for like 50 years. You have mm-hmm. friends around the world and say, "Hey, check this out." And so, I got this bottle of wine from my friends in uh, Traunfeld, Austria. It's like, this is amazing. That's fantastic, yeah. yeah. So when you say no defects guy, I see you're not a big fan of natural wines. No, they are, they're defective in general. Yeah. There, there's definitely something wrong with them. We well, sing that song too, yeah. Well, that's, Al- it's called aldehyde, or oxidation. <laughs> yeah. It's like, yeah, it's, it's The thing about natural wines is the magic is not selling the first one. So when you're buying a bottle of wine, it's a wager. I bet my 100 euros that I like this bottle of wine. My job is to over deliver to give you a, at least your 100, 100 euros worth of value back because we want to sell you the next bottle. So the magic is like one of the things I say to anybody who I want them to take our wine. I said, if you just sell one bottle of my wine, I'll sell the rest of the case because the wine's so good that people will come back for it. That's the obligation of a good producer. But if you're only selling one bottle to one guy and then they go off to the next one, they go to the next one, the next one, because it is part of a solid business program to have regular customers or yeah. wine clubs and people that love your wine every year that they can trust your brand. They could be here in Dublin or all the way in Singapore and they see Chateau Montelain and say, oh, I know that wine. I know that's going to be quality product and my $100 bet is going to pay off. Mm-hmm. And I just think that we have a responsibility to do that, but that's why I think no defects is important. So. Mm-hmm. Sure. Um, I, I was recently in London and my uncle is a very... Um, avid wine collector and he's a total French snob so I brought him over a bottle of your 2016 <laughs> Montelena Chardonnay so uh, but he knew it so I was delighted <laughs> <laughs> did he taste it no he didn't did taste it he'll keep it there yeah, you know. people okay. get they think yeah. it's so funny when they come to Chateau Montelena we make these very classical European style wines but we're very Western American you know, with our <laughs> cowboy hats and our boots and our Love it. we'll have to pay a visit pick up trucks, pick up yeah. trucks and all that good stuff we're, we're very Western Americans so the general, but there's not, that doesn't stop us from playing the classics. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, love I'd it. love to visit next time in Napa. Yeah, you have to come and oh, visit. Oh, for that? It's, it's beautiful out there. Yeah. Thank you so much for your time. It's I been an absolute been pleasure. It's been my pleasure. Thank you so and much for asking me in. You're great. Right. We're looking forward to tasting your wines now. All right, so. yeah, come on out. We're there. Excellent. All right, thank you. Okay. We do these podcasts because we want you, our listeners, to know what's going on in the world of wine and be informed when it comes to your wine buying decisions. We always love hearing from you. So let us know your thoughts on Instagram and Twitter. Sign up for our newsletter. And if you haven't subscribed to Wine, the long and the short of it yet, make sure you do that wherever you get your podcasts. Or reach out to us by email at ourwinepodcast at gmail.com. Until next time, I'm Antonia Dominguez. And I'm Linda Coogan. Cheers. Cheers. You have been listening to Wine, the Long and the Short of It with me, Antonia Dominguez. And me, Linda Coogan, in proud partnership with Give Wine a Future.